Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hi, I'm Paul Listick, and welcome to Behind the Curtain. People ask me sometimes, when, when do you think it will be enough? When will, it, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. If I had any talent in the world, any talent that God could give me, I would be a great diva. Uh, greetings, everybody. This is Paul Lisnick. Welcome to Behind the Curtain. Uh, stepping away, well, you know, from the politics role I cover on TV, but in some way this brings politics into the theater world. We're going to talk about a show called When There Are Nine, which is currently playing at the Pride Arts Center through March 13th. You don't want to miss this. Uh, it's up uh, North Broadway, 4139 North Broadway. And, of course, When We Are Nine, I played that famous clip of the actual Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that very phrase, but it certainly got picked up uh, appropriately so is the title of this new show when there are nine and joining me i couldn't be happier the playwright sally deering is with me and ruth bader ginsburg herself or at least in the form of talia langman talia and sally welcome to both of you i'm so glad you are with me and by the way i got to start with you talia you know and i know you're you're hearing this i'm starting to see the incredible reviews you do look like a young ruth bader ginsburg (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I've I, so I've heard. Yes, <laughs> it could mean that it could mean that uh, a law school is next for you. I don't know. We're going to find out. We're also being joined by <laughs> Sam Hess, who's the director of When There Are Nine. So, Sam, welcome to you. But Sally, I want to come to you and talk to you about this. I know this was a sort of an, an invitation to write this kind of show. How important was it to you, as a woman who's written so many wonderful shows, to get into the life, the world of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Uh, it was very exciting uh, because I was—I really didn't know much about her. I knew of her, but I didn't know her uh, life, really. And then to start reading about her, reading that she was from Brooklyn, and uh, I had immediately had many connections to her because my mother is from Brooklyn. And uh, and it, just the more I read about her and more I really understood her, her personal life, how much it, it, it sort of mirrored a little bit of my life because I was also a young feminist. I'm a lot younger than her, but I was a young feminist, and I went up the ranks as well as she did, and I faced a lot of the same obstacles that she did. So I started to realize that there was a lot of similarities uh, of her life, my life, and women in general who are still who are feminists who are trying to make sense of the world, you know. And, you know, I have to say, so I, and I'm a lawyer and I've talked to both of you and Sally, we spoke a lot on the day that I was at the, at the show. Um, and so, you know, this is not meant to be a review of her legal career per, per se. This is about her life and who she was. Uh, and so actually, Sam, let me come to you because as the director, is that a conflict? Was, was that kind of a, a conflict for you? In other words, knowing the people, you know, they know the history or many will know the history of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, certainly the lawyers anyway. But at the same time, that's really not the mission of the show, which is to tell us what decisions she wrote and all of that, right? There's so much more to this. Right, absolutely. And I would also say that so much of, you know, we cover so much ground in 90 minutes that we really couldn't provide uh, a super, you know, nuanced narrative biographical retelling of her life, right? So um, I would say, too, that an important piece of what the show accomplishes is 
um, sort of hitting on themes and sort of like what Sally said, some themes that resonated with her own life, sort of like seeing how Ruth experienced those and, and what might still be relevant today. And I'm just curious to tell you, if, do, do, what kind of research, if any, because not people sometimes always don't do this, but, you know, for me, and I think most of you know, I've had the opportunity, I got to interview Justice Ginsburg. I spent some time with her at various events and stuff, so I didn't know her really well, but but I certainly spent a fair amount of time with her. And I'm curious to tell you, there, there was she. there's so much to her and questions people always wondered, like, how did she get along, become best friends with the most conservative justice on the court, Antonin Scalia, there were, you know, and, and yet there she was performing an opera. I mean, so many diverse, did you do research to find out who this woman was? was that you're about to portray? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of um, my process in the beginning was really just digging into to finding out who this woman was, um, uh, you know, through just reading as much as I could about her, also watching her, um, gathering um, as much um, video clips or audio that I could to just kind of um, dig into, into this person that, you know, we we have seen um, over and over again, but to really kind of get even more under the surface of that and to to understand where she comes from and, and what motivates her um, as, you know, Sam and Sally were both saying to, um, to make the decisions that she's made in her career and in her personal life as well. And, Sally, in, in terms of drafting this, uh, you know, the that actual line, I'm so glad you picked it as the title. I assume you picked it as the title, the When There Are yeah. Nine. When when right. Ginsburg would do these public uh, speeches and presentations, she actually went on because that line always got applause, some laughter, but right. always applause. And right. then she would look at the audience and say, I don't know why you're laughing. She said, for 200 years, <laughs> you've had nine men on the court, and that didn't seem to bother anybody. So why is this so outrageous? And the question I want to ask you, is, I think this is in the script as opposed to a director decision, but pretty much except for her husband um, in this show, everybody's played by a woman, women are playing men. Was that critical to this? In other words, even if they were male justices we were talking about, like Rehnquist who shows up or different, but they're all played by women. Is that, that's in the script? Yes. Yes, Why? actually it is in the script. And um, we've actually, uh, our understudy for the male role is a woman. So, um, uh, Marty, Gabe, who plays Marty, is a wonderful actor. He does a great job as Marty, the husband. Uh, but his understudy is a woman. Uh, to see what it would even be like if it was all nine women in the cast. I mean, it's a, you know, it brings a different perspective to the whole thing. It really does, you know. Uh, because, you know, we always talk about in feminism, there's a big thing about the male gaze and the feminist gaze, the female gaze and the male gaze. And how much of the war, how much of the law how much of American law, how much of life for women has been filtered through the male gaze. So to have women play men always adds just such a nice uh, difference because now it's through the female gaze. It's through the female lens. Whether you like it or not, it's through the female lens. And I love that. I think that is such a great dimension to it. And I have to say, watching the show, of course, you can't help, depending on your point of view, you can't help but get sort of angry at the barriers that Justice Ginsburg had in her life because she was a woman, mm-hmm. be it a clerkship, yeah. be it the job. I mean, there was always a, you just can't go far. You're a woman. So Sam, as a That's director's, right. yeah, as a director's decision, uh, how did you work with the fact that all these women who were playing men, who were unfair to women, it was also a period piece, right? I mean, this, this was the fifties. I mean, this, so it's a different time, but how did that affect your, your directing in terms of women having to play men who probably angered and frustrated you <laughs> in terms of who they really were in the fifties? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I think a key piece for all of that for me is the idea that 
you know, for example, uh, Judge Palmieri being played by a woman, we talked a lot about uh, sort of that behavior feeling just so, you know, larger than life, like, like wondering, like, could a man really get away with this? Because it feels as a woman playing it, it feels like, oh, this is totally out of the bounds of reality. But in reality, it's not for men, right? So we sort of see that juxtaposition of a woman playing that role um, and sort of how that, that highlights the whole theme of that of that interview scene, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And, and totally. What it is, too, may I add to that, is that we're pointing up the absurdity of the situation because there is an absurdity that women actually went through this. And I think that is also part of what that's all about. Well, I don't think there's any question about that. No, no, I'm glad you did. And, 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 and do that at any time. But I mean, again, I think people just don't understand that at the time that these women went to law school, they were often the only woman in their class. They were all, you know, and you have the scenes where it's sort of like, what are you doing? You're taking up a seat a man could be having here. That's so yes. we've got a long way to go, but we've come a long way. And Tally, you also have to present Justice Ginsburg as a young woman. We, we, we start sort of in her younger days, but also in her final days. And um, this is done, I'm sure part of it's directed, but, but in terms of you, what has to happen in your head? Because you, you don't say, and now I'm old again, ladies and gentlemen. You just have to become these different ages and these different moments. What happens in your head? Because the Justice Ginsburg, who passed away not all that long ago, you know, had a whole different perspective on life in many ways because of her life experience than she probably had in the young days when she had the dreams, but she hadn't written the decision. Yet. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's definitely um, it's definitely part of the process, um, just sort of um, digging into, you know, what it what it means to be to be older and at the end of your life. And to your point about where your headspace at, is at and also where your body is. I work very much with like mind and, and body together there. So it really was um, a process, a collaborative effort as well. I'd say just working with the ensemble, with Sam, with Sally to kind of move between those um, different um, areas of, of Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, whether she was 17 years old and, you know, hearing that her mother was going to die or, you know, at the end of her life, realizing that she herself was going to die and, um, and just working, working with those elements. And Sally, uh, I want to ask, well, let me ask you this question, but I'll do it via, via this story. Um, when, when the Gore versus Bush case happened or Bush versus Gore happened, um, Justice Ginsburg wrote a decision that had two words to it, and the words were I dissent. And I, you and I talked about I told you this story, and I'd always thought the way I taught that in class was I always said she was angry. She was, you know, this was unfair. This was just she was just how could she be show her anger any more than than being able to just say two words I dissent. And then in one of the first times I interviewed her, I asked her that question and basically said, well, was it anger? What was it all about? And she looked at me and she went, I was exhausted. No, I wasn't angry. You don't win everything. I was just exhausted and didn't have any sleep for seven days. How wrong was I? So the question that I have for you is, as you made decisions about who Justice Ginsburg is, how important is it that that the messages we get from watching the performance, that they're accurate to who she is? Or is this more about us understanding Justice Ginsburg the way you want us to see her? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, I, I wish I, I don't know if I could even answer that honestly. I think the thing about it is, uh, from my feelings, that uh, this gives us a, 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 an hour and a half to get to know her a little bit. She was taken away from us, as she says in the play about her mother, much too soon. She was taken away from us during the pandemic. Uh, she was just gone like a, you know, like a magician. She just, she just vanished. 
So this is an hour and a half to give us a chance to see her and to connect with her, her essence of her, uh, to learn a little bit more about her. And also, it's like, I said this before, it's like when you lose someone that you care about, you say to yourself, where do I put that love? You do that when you lose a pet, you do that when you lose a loved one, where do I put that love? And I feel that all of us who love her so much, it's like, where do we put that love? Well, come to see this play, because there's so much love in this play for her, there's respect for her, there's a little bit of uh, there's personal stuff about her. There's, there's, you learn a little bit about her, but it's a way to get to, just to almost say, not to say goodbye to her, but you, just to connect with her again one more time. And I think that's the beauty of this piece. Yeah, and Sam, in directing, when I look at some of the relationships and such, I mean, obviously Ginsburg and I, I don't think, Telly, you're ever off stage. Pretty sure you're, you're on stage the entire time. So that, that's an amazing thing to do. And kudos to you uh, for that. Sounds like awards in the future, but we'll see. Um, but, for, but Sam, question for you, which is, you know, I mean, the, you direct the relationship between uh, Marty and, and Justice Ginsburg as, as, you know, obviously he revered her. He, he thought highly of her. I, I, I was spent time with him too, talked to him, and, and very clearly he did. But the the other thing that was interesting was she felt the same way about him. She revered him. She held him up. So I'm sort of curious, in directing this, were you concerned that we, it's just important that we get his reverence for her? Or did you sort of look and say, no, she's human, and, and this is her husband, and so we want that. We want people to get the sense of the, the full woman in that way. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think, honestly, because so much of this, like everything we see in this play, really takes place in Ruth's mind. Um, and while I know that, that it was such an equally championing relationship, I wanted to make sure it was clear that, that that's the lens that we were working with, right? So I think we definitely talked a lot more about, about Marty being the cheerleader that he was to her um, rather than that very truly reciprocated um, nature of their relationship. And by the way, Tally, Justice Ginsburg never took vacations. I mean, not that she didn't ever go on a vacation, but uh, when, when I talked to her about sort of like, a, what are you doing on your time off over the summer? She looked at me like I was crazy um, because there is no time off there. She, she worked 24 yeah. seven. So I, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering if something like that is something that kind of informs your position. This is a woman who did not know from did not know from let me take the month off. Right. Uh yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because she was she was obviously so dedicated to her work, um, you know, and, and the law. And it was such a big focus of hers. But, you know, I will say in in the research that I did, and of course, I think Sally or Sam could expand on this. Um, I did find that she she did find ways to balance that. I mean, she talks about in um, when she was in law school, like one of the reasons that she was so successful was that she had a, um, a 14 year, 14 month old child that she would take time to, um, well, spend time with right. and that would sort of help recharge her. So, you know, I think she kind of shows that although you could, she's very dedicated to what, um, she did, she, she was able to find these balances. I also think Marty as well was a, a wonderful balance for, for Ruth. He, he brought out this sense of humor and this, this liveliness that I think she, she needed to help balance that with such a, a seriousness that she had. There's no question, no question about it. And and by the way, the, I know one of the reviews I read from around the town Chicago basically said, if there's I looked at the show as one of the best that that's ever been around, and basically said you you need to see this before it closes, which is true because it's playing only through March 13th. Uh, when there are nine, it's the Pride Arts Center playing through March 13th. Tickets at prideart.org. 
Sally Deering, you get the most congratulations because you are indeed the playwright. But Tally Langman for playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that is an amazing challenge that you have to take on. And Sam Hess directing this kind of project with such an iconic and legendary figure, which she is and was. Uh, I congratulate all of you. I encourage everybody to check it out. Fightarts.org. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate all your time. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, what an incredible, incredible song. That was the voice of Felicia Fields, who you may know from so many roles, including her Tony Award, nom- uh, Tony nominated award winning performance in uh, The Color Purple as Sophia. But she is in Chicago performing in Blues in the Night at the Porch Light Music Theater. Uh, and this is just something you don't want to miss. It, it's playing until March 13th. Joining me to talk about this, the artistic director of Porch Light, Michael Weber, and the musical director for this show and many other, David. Fiorello. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me for this incredible show, as you always put on, Michael. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me back again. It's great to be here. You got it. And let me actually, Michael, I'm going to start with the first question for you, because The Blues in the Night, which is an amazing show, it's a revisit to, to you know, all the music of, uh, of an era. It's set in Chicago. Kudos to uh, Kenny Ingram for his direction and choreography. But I have this sense, like, the casting in this show was critical. Felicia Fields, Donica Lynn, um, you know, Evan Tyrone Martin, Claire Kennedy, Terrell Armstrong. Would this show be as good no matter who was in it? I think, like, you had to have that magic blend of, of people, and you, and you got it. Yeah, no, I don't think it would be as good. I think it is, it is one of those rare shows that you don't see a lot anymore that are dis- uh, dependent upon star personalities and star turns. Uh, the, the character that Felicia plays uh, is a character who is based uh, from the days of Vaudeville, which was all about star personalities. So it's not an easy show to, uh, to mount because it is a very specifically uh, looking at blues and jazz music of the era, and you need performers who um, can authentically wrap themselves around that kind of music and present it, and this is definitely one of those casts that kind of uh, elevate the show from being simply a music theater piece to having an authentic voice about a milieu of music that they're, in which they're singing. Yeah, and David Fiorello, and this is a question for you. I would also ask Kenny Ingram, uh, the the director and choreographer, who was to be with us, but he's on a plane right now, so it's all yours. Which is to say, I've had some people describe this show as, oh, it's a musical review of blues. I don't think it is a musical review. I mean, I get why they say it, but I think there's a story here, and it's not a review. Sure, absolutely. I, I, I think you're exactly right, as you often are, Mr. Paul, isn't it? Um, I think that with the blues, you know, we just, the blues is really about storytelling. It's something that really came out of gospel and came out of, you know, these old age traditions of storytelling. And so you can't really have the blues without having some kind of context behind it. You can't really have, you know, someone singing about their life up to this point and all the pathos and all the sadness and the melancholy that comes with it without giving us a little bit of context as to who these women are, who these people are in the show. And I feel like that was such a great testimony 
to uh, the great work that Kenny Ingram did on the show and also our phenomenal performers uh, and just them really being able to dig deep and kind of take this storyline that is a bit loose, um, but it is, it is absolutely critical that we have it so that we can get a window into these people's souls in 1938 on the South Side. And, and Michael, the show, and I know Sheldon Epps conceived this, he was the original director of it, um, it's set on the south side of Chicago, and that made me wonder, like, if this were playing in some other town, some other city, would it always be set in Chicago? Is this a Chicago story? Well, the blues is Chicago music. I mean, everybody yeah. knows that. And uh, I think Sheldon was very insightful to set it specifically here in Chicago when they did the original Broadway production uh, back in 1982, because... Uh, it is it is a music that is so essentially tied to our city, the evolution of it, and some of the great blues singers lived here then. And my God, you can walk over to Buddy Guy's right now tonight and see great blues music being created in Chicago. So the two are intrinsically, I think, tied together. And in Sheldon Epps' decision to set the show um, at that time period uh, in Chicago, specifically on the South Side, um, it really kind of uh, helps our audiences, uh, many of whom are Chicago area locals, to be able to tie in and, and celebrate and understand that uh, deep connection that this city has with this particular form of music. Uh, David, you must have had the most fun when you got to direct those numbers like Take It Back Chaser when, when all three of them are just, going, <laughs> are just going at it in a number. Was there, did, it, did it impact you how you directed a number where two or three of them were singing together as opposed to their own, their own numbers? Absolutely. That's a great question. I feel like, you know, the tricky thing is that is, you know, you can't really authentically do the blues on stage without it being theatrical. And this is still a musical. There's still a structure to it. We didn't just choose some blues songs that we like, you know, we're doing the actual show. And so I think one of the beauties of that is when you get all three of these characters, especially in that song and uh, take it right back, is that they're all feeling very similar things, but coming through it as a different, you know, kind of point of views of it. And just have the fun of that and, and getting these three, you know, in this case, Claire and Donica and Felicia, getting these three powerhouses together to make music, you know, the three of them. And that's why I think it was so lovely in some of these reviews when they were talking about, yes, it's amazing to see Felicia do this 11 o'clock number. It's great to see Donica do Lush Life. But just the power that comes together when you've got three ladies on stage coming at it from, you know, the difference in their ages alone is, you know, a good 60 years, 50 years. And so it was, it was really, really a treat to be able to work on it with such great performance. And I was sort of curious, Michael, was there any ad-libbing at all? And what I mean by that is I was with you on opening night, which was amazing. And, you know, it was like, and it's especially Felicia, who I think if anyone's going to ad-lib, it's going to be her. But maybe she mm-hmm. didn't. But there's a line where one point, you know, Claire is, is singing out loud, whatever, and Felicia sort of says, see, white people have rhythm, too, or something. Or mm-hmm. has a sense of the blues, too. And I just thought, that, that is so Felicia, that just looks so tossed in. Was it, or is that scripted? Well, that it was not scripted. Felicia is it is not to be controlled in that sense. But Felicia <laughs> Fields is one of those types of performers who immediately creates a relationship with each audience at each show, and so she she feels that she is singing to you. And as soon as you start giving her your feedback in terms of. Uh, that you approve of what she's doing and the pleasure that you're having of how she's presenting. She wants to connect and cross past the fourth wall and really break it and start connecting with the audience. 
Um, but, but again, to go back to your first observation, which when you talk about things that are a star vehicle, and we've seen this happen with many people on stage, certainly, you know, recently with Bette Midler in, term, in Hello, Dolly, where she would just break the fourth wall and go, I'm Bette Midler, and I'm on stage, and let's not pretend that you don't love me and I don't love you. We love each other. That's the way Felicia is. That's the way Donica is. Um, that's the way Evan Tyrone is. These are, these are really monumental personalities on stage, and the audience is able to look directly into their eyes as they are singing this music, and they see you. They see the 218 people who are sitting out there in this very intimate house, and they want to connect with you. And that's what makes this show so special, because while it is a theatrical piece, as David is observing, it's also a concert in the sense that you are there with the performer, and they know you're there, and they'll acknowledge you're being there, and they want to acknowledge your identification with the music and the themes of the music that they're singing, and go, yeah, we, we see each other, right? We, we feel this. We've had these mutual experiences. So that's the great joy of being in a room with somebody like Felicia Fields, who is one of the great blues singers in Chicago, and you get her in this intimate environment and be able to hear some of the great music ever written in this genre. What, what a great answer, and I have to say, because admittedly, I'm a huge, and you know this, I'm a huge Felicia Fields fan, president of her fan mm-hmm. club, probably, and, and every time she's on stage, my eyes just go to her, except I want to go to Donica. Donica, you keep stealing my eyesight. What do you do? Because she was so Aww. amazing in her own expressions, every one of those women. Uh, but, but David, let me ask you, maybe a little bit, of, again, a Kenny question with you, but um, Terrell Armstrong, the dancing man, talk about the importance mm-hmm. and the presence, maybe how it affected your, your um, directing of having this dancing presence. He doesn't sing. I don't. I don't even think he talks, but he's always there. Absolutely. And it's, this was something that Kenny created specifically for this production, uh, was the idea of this dancing man that could interact with his ladies. And, you know, it's just something that, especially in a theatrical convention where we're doing the show, it really adds a lot of juice to some of these women and some of the songs that they're singing about. I mean, some of the characters, like Claire, she starts off very bright-eyed, and, you know, she's singing Taking a Chance on Love, and everything's all about the possibilities. And then, you know, we get to the second act where she's singing, the, you know, the Reckless Life Blues. And, like, you know, we want to see some of this interaction interaction and, and some of this journey and he's just i mean terrell armstrong is is one of the greatest dancers in chicago he's such a hard worker and is incredible in this role so limber but then also so mischievous and so sly and i think he just he does a wonderful wonderful job bringing to this production something new and something that i think adds quite a bit to it Michael, each of these stars seems to represent so many, but I mean, as you listen, there's music of, of Bessie Smith, of Billy Strayhorn. I mean, truly a spectrum uh, of blues music. Did, did you, in, in your mind, in terms of the casting, which I know you played a critical role, did you sort of say, okay, I need this actress is kind of like these performers? Or did, did, was there a tie in your mind, or was that not part of this? Who, who's the Billy, you know, who's going to be the, um, the right person to sort of, you know, present the number of Bessie Smith, for example? Right. Well, part of it is a lot of those decisions have already been made by Sheldon Epps in terms of the way that he crafted the piece to have a dramatic through line, uh, which allows the audience to find a link into the show so that they can understand any given character's journey. Um, this is the type of show that that is a little bit of a hybrid because when you are dealing with somebody like Felicia Fields or Donica uh, or Evan to some degree, you know, we know what those actors bring to the table. And so it is a melding of what what Sheldon Epps created in the original production as well as going, we've got somebody who, are, who is going to bring their certain magic to the stage and then we're going to put it together. Sometimes uh, you may be looking in terms of going, well, this 
role has this note in it, and maybe this, you know, whoever we cast has got to be able to hit this note or do this kind of a thing. And in this show, it's a little bit more of a uh, of a give and take. Uh, uh, alchemy that you're kind of putting together because Felicia sings the way Felicia does. She does not sing the way that the original person sang on Broadway. We're not going to try to make Felicia sing that way. We are going to come to her and meet her halfway and she will bring herself to understand I'm not Felicia Fields on stage doing a concert act. I am playing this character called the woman, uh, the lady from the road. And so, you know, it, it is a bit of a melding together of, of a lot of things, which makes this a unique piece and not just some sort of a, a blues or jazz concert that you could see anywhere. It has a lot of very particulars, but then it has a lot of freedom for, as you're saying, for them to be able to improvise and connect so that every audience seeing the show is seeing a very unique performance that night. They're not seeing the same show they saw the day before or that they might do, you know, the next day. It's, uh, it, it makes it a very unique experience. And David, it would be criminal for me not to have you, the musical director, talk about that band a little bit. You know, when I when I saw Malty Jewel sitting at the piano, I thought, wait, that's not David here. Why didn't he have the piano? But you've got this incredible four-person band that just, that each of them, a character in their own right. Yeah, I have to say, I am I am blown away by the artistry of Malty Jewel IV. He is a blessing, not even in disguise. It's very clear from day one. Uh, and he, you know, he grew up, you know, kind of in the church and playing a lot of this music. And he can do so much of it by ear. He's one of the most phenomenal musicians I've ever met. And the rest of that band, uh, Ricardo and Darius and uh, Jeff, who was playing bass for us for the first week. Uh, and then, of course, uh, our drummer Harold as well. They're just incredible musicians. From the beginning, they were so humble and so eager and so ready to play and as you saw with the show you know they become an, uh, an integral part of the actual experience Malty's got a couple lines and they interact with him and it's kind of cute and flirty at times and fun but it's it was it's just an absolute joy because there's such pros and um yeah and it just makes the entire thing come alive there's a difference between even doing it with like a big old band of like 15 16 like a good you know old big band it'd be very different this this really feels like it's a thing that's coming out of this 1938 you know, Southside Hotel, and it's just these people and these five singers, uh, five five performers uh, with this band. And yeah, I can't speak enough about uh, the great work that they've done. Just a real joy. And I just and before we wrap, uh, Michael, I have to do a tip of the hat to Angela Weber Miller, Ruben Eccles, the costumes, the set, the scenery, absolutely amazing. I mean, there are no walls on this set yet. You feel like there are because they're supposed to be right. We just don't see them. Yeah. Angie Weber Miller is really one of Chicago's great scenic designers, and she, uh, just from reading, you know, the, the, the simplistic sketches of drama that are there in the script that Sheldon Epps gives you, she created a fully realized hotel that we are in. But you, there is there are little magic tricks that you're alluding to, which kind of take you to other areas of the hotel. So it doesn't feel like you're just isolated in one section, but you sometimes feel like you're literally going outside of the hotel. Uh, you sometimes are with the character in reality. Sometimes you're with the character kind of in the imagination of their mind. Um, it, it, that is all due to Angela Lever Miller, and uh, she she's just really quite one of the, the, the great set designers uh, that Chicago has got. She's a real guest. 
It's an amazing show, and I have to say, as we're talking now, there's a uh, matinee about to start, which is why we didn't have our cast members along with us having this conversation, but I do know Michael and David, you will give them my love, please, to do the, uh, to do so. And uh, Blues in the Night is at the Porchlight Music Theater through March 13th. Tickets at Porchlight Music Theater. Theater spelled the proper British, British way, T-R-E, I always love saying that, dot org, porchlightmusictheater.org, or the uh, phone is 773-777-9884. You don't want to miss it. This is just such a phenomenal show. David Fiorello and Michael Weber, congratulations as always. You've never put on anything except excellence on that stage. And, of course, as we wrap, i got to listen to Felicia one more time, if you don't mind. So we're going to go out with my thanks and having Felicia do a little bit of a New Orleans hopscotch blues. Southern town with hospitality, you will surely find the population there is very, very fair. With everything they do, white folk do it too. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Paul Lisnick. That's P A U L L I S N E K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.